You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Hello and welcome to another episode of the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal and I am an Associate Professor of Political Science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Uh, You're tuning in to the third and final episode of a series of episodes thinking about the Southern Baptist Convention and sexual abuse, uh, beginning with an episode interviewing John Whitehead, talking about the report that came out last spring uh, exploring sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, and then following that up with an episode interviewing attorney Matt Martins, uh, talking about the federal grand jury investigation into sexual abuse in the Southern Southern Baptist Convention. I want to wrap up on what is hopefully more of a a positive and proactive note today by talking to Dr. Jonathan Lehman, editorial director of Nine Marks Ministries in Washington, D.C., elder at Cheverly Baptist Church, uh, and husband and father living in Cheverly, Maryland. Uh, Did I miss anything there? And friend friend of Coyle Neal. Most important thing on the list, right? Right. There we go. (laughs) Uh, Also author of uh, a book on the topic that we are discussing today uh, that is specifically church discipline. Right? You wrote the church discipline book in the... In in the Nine Mark series. Written a few of them, actually. Right, right. Uh, On on that topic, which is kind of weird, but that's, I don't know if I'd call it a claim to fame, but I've written several books on discipline, yeah. Well, and and it's it's an interesting and important topic, especially when we're thinking about sexual abuse in the church, uh, because this is, so I guess for the purposes of today's episode, we're not dealing with prevention. Uh, we're, we're dealing with kind of a, what if something has happened or at least accusations of something having, something having happened arise, uh, that becomes a question of church discipline, uh, even aside from legal issues, uh, for thinking about prevention, there's a Christian feminist podcast episode. And I want to say they called it the, it's titled like the Mike Pence rule or something like that. Uh, uh, maybe they called it the Billy Graham rule, but I will point listeners in that direction uh, from a couple of years ago, and I should know it better than that since my wife was on it, but I don't. So there, there you have it. Um, so, Jonathan, can you can you start by giving us just a, a brief overview? Of what is church discipline? What are what are the processes? What are the requirements? Uh, can you just uh, give us kind of the the snippet view of this? Sure, uh, I can. The answer to that's going to differ slightly depending on the denomination that you're coming from. The different churches will have different books of church order or constitutions that regulate it differently. But we're all drawing in one way or another from a few biblical passages like Matthew 18, where Jesus instructs believers to pursue the lost sheep. Well, how do we pursue the lost sheep? Well, then he answers in verses 15 to 20 and 15 to 17 specifically. You know, if, if a brother sins against you, go and show his fault. If he listens, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't listen, take, uh, bring one or two others so that a matter, now invoking Deuteronomy 19, kind of a courtroom trial, so that every matter may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, 16 to verse 17. If he doesn't listen to them, tell it to the church, the ecclesia. And if he doesn't listen to the church, treat him as you would 
a pagan or a tax collector. That is to say, somebody outside of the covenant community. Treat them as you would a non-Christian. So, so church discipline is drawing from that. It's also drawing from a, a passage like 1 Corinthians 5, where a man is sleeping with his, apparently his stepmother, and, and, and Paul says, let him be removed from among you. Uh, in, in verse 2 and then verse 5 he, he tells them to hand him over to Satan so that his soul may be saved that is just a hand him back to the kingdom of Satan no longer a citizen of the kingdom of God what is church discipline? Well, in the broad sense it's just correcting sin right? so you might say to me privately Jonathan you know you were uh, a bit contentious in that podcast we just recorded and I, I feel like you, know, you were unkind to certain people you're, we were talking about it felt a bit slanderous to me. Okay, we might have that one-on-one conversation. That, that you could call it a little instance of church discipline. You were correcting me in my sin. Uh, more broadly, it's that overall process that we see in, say, Matthew 18, which culminates in the final step of church discipline, removing somebody from membership in the church or membership in the Lord's table. Sometimes people use the term church discipline just to talk about that final step, uh, also called exclusion or excommunication excommunioning them so we can narrow, we can we can use the term narrowly about that final step or we can use it broadly just the overall process of correcting sin right so in the broad sense a healthy church will kind of always have church discipline going on there there will always Absolutely. be believers no, encouraging exactly each other right, right. Uh, in yeah. in the narrow sense a healthy church will occasionally have church discipline going on. I think that's right. I think that's well said. Yeah. Um, and and, so, and keep in mind, d- discipline is one, just one last thing on it. Discipline is one part of the discipleship process. Think of those words, disciple, discipline, etymological cousins, right? Part of discipling is teaching and correcting. What does a math teacher do? He teaches, he corrects errors, you know, in the student's problems. So, so part of making disciples, which we're commanded to do by Jesus, is to correct them in their sin. Now, uh, I, I realize that when we're thinking about sexual abuse, it's it's always going to have to be uh, occasion-specific, right? You're going to have to take kind of case-by-case case, uh, and deal with that. But And, and Coyle, that's your way of saying, I can't say, well, it just depends. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, uh, is, is it an overstatement to say when we are dealing with accusations of, of sexual abuse, uh, we're, we're probably dealing with that second more specific definition, right? We're probably talking excommunication as the appropriate end of the process if, in fact, it, it did occur, occur and if, in fact, their guilt is found to be the case, right? It's probably well, not just a mild rebuke. Well, I mean, well okay. What is the purpose of that process in Matthew 18? Remember, I said it invokes. Right. Deuteronomy 19 in the court light situation so that a matter may be established. Well, the, the, the purpose of that process is to establish the charge. Sometimes people make charges that are misunderstanding or not true or just that the facts don't hold up. Um, or if the facts hold up, the person proves repentant or unrepentant. So let's suppose you really did lie and I challenge you and you say, yeah, I did lie. Well, you really sinned, you're guilty, but you're repenting of it. You confess it. Right. What's tougher about church di- uh, sexual abuse is, on the one hand, you want to say somebody who's committed it. Well, first we need to establish it. Did it actually happen? 
you know, uh, and second, is the person, uh, supposing it has happened, is the person repentant of it? Do they confess it? They say, yeah, that's true. I'll do whatever it takes to repent. I'll cut off my hand. I'll gouge up my eye. Tell me what to do. I'll, I'll confess it to the church. Okay, and, and, and by all, you know, appearances, they're repentant. Well, no, it wouldn't in that situation necessarily lead to conclu- uh, to excommunication. To removing from the church. Now there might be other situations at play, different factors at play, which you still need to protect the sheep. You need to protect this person's a predator, uh, the, maybe the, the woman or the man who's been abused. Um, you, know, you need to take precautions there, but that's where things start getting pretty complicated. So, given the process that you've described, uh, does that look different when church discipline involves a pastor or elder or some other sort of authority figure? Does that look different than when you're disciplining a member? Uh, especially if the uh, the person accused, say, is the normally the go-between for information for the congregation. So, say, the elder being accused is normally the person who stands up in members' meetings or, or stands up during a church service and informs the congregation as to what's going on. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, now, okay, when, now when you're, when you're dealing with an elder... Let me let me avoid the kind of go between the person normally standing up. Let me just deal with the elder because there's several issues that we have there. I, I can take them one at a time. Let's say we're dealing with a, a a pastor who's been accused, right? Well, when you have a pastor, there's there's several things to keep in mind. Number one, there's just the overall question of Christian repentance. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna treat this person as a Christian, and I before you're a pastor, you're a church member. So if a pastor proves, say, unrepentant of demonstrable sexual abuse in some form or fashion, well, he, he needs to be excommunicated, right? But let's suppose he's repentant, fully and completely repentant, best we can tell, right? Well, that means we don't excommunicate him. We're still going to treat him as a member of the church, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's still a pastor, what you have in cases of, say, sexual abuse and, let's just say, a sexual sin or adultery generally, or disqualifying sin generally, you have two offices at play. You have the office of member at play, but you also have the office of pastor. Now, the criteria for one office, membership, is repentance and faith. So if he's repenting and believing, that disqualified elder can still be a member. But what's the qualification for the office of elder? Well, above reproach. So even if he's repenting, he's still not above reproach. So I'm still going to remove him from the office of pastor. That makes sense. So yeah. when we're when we're dealing with di- uh, dis- potentially disqualifying sin with an elder, you have to treat kind of those two separate offices distinctly in your mind to some extent, right? Because the qualifications for each are different. Okay, that's that's kind of the first big Roman numeral. Recognize the distinction of offices. The second, the second thing is uh, Paul. Paul does lay out for us uh, specific guidance for somebody who has uh, an elder who has sinned. He says, "Do not." This is First Timothy five verse nineteen. Do not, do not admit a charge against an elder, a pastor, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Now he's not talking about sexual abuse. He's just talking about sin in general. Sin right. in general. And it requires two or three people to come along and say, "Look, yeah, this is this is this is clear. We have evidence. Why why would Paul be explicit about that from the get go? Could it be? I mean, we don't know, but could it be that 
when you put yourself in a position of leadership, you put yourself in, in, in the face of many potential charges. And, and so I remember one occasion where a man came to the elders of our church and said, you know, elder, let me just say, pick it up, Bob. Elder Bob uh, is in temper. I've seen him lose his temper too many times. And and the elder said, uh, okay, we're, we're open to that, but do you have anybody else with you? He's like, no, just I've seen it. And based on First Timothy 5, we, we've, we've felt compelled to say, well, listen, if you can bring somebody else to corroborate that with you, then we'll consider it. And, you know, obviously these men, are, these elders weren't naive. And we knew the brother and both brothers at play. And we, you know, as it were, we're kind of looking to ourselves. Nonetheless, we felt bound not to entertain the charge for that reason. What about sexual sin? Very often sexual sin is private. And yeah, by, by definition, right? It's, 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 no one it's, else is going to be around. It's by definition private. Nobody's exactly. Honestly, brother, it's just a lot harder. It really is. And 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 there's no simple, easy answer to that question, uh, because people have made false accusations. You know, the Book of Deuteronomy warns harshly against those who would, who would who would indict or slander the innocent, accuse the innocent. So on the one hand, we don't want to do that. On the other hand, we recognize various dynamics of, of, of one could say dynamics of power at play in situations like those. We want to be sensitive to that. Um, and we want to be sensitive to the fact that uh, coming forward for a, a person who has been abused in some fashion is really, really hard to do. And we don't want to treat that lightly. And so in those cases, now l- let, me, let me just state for the record here, well, I've, I've never been in a, I don't think I've been, I can't think of an occasion in which I've been on an elder board in which uh, somebody made charge against one of our fellow elders sexual impropriety. So I'm, I'm not talking from personal experience here. Okay, so the, the situation, so let's suppose a person makes a charge against an elder and it really comes down to a he said, she said, that it's just a terribly difficult situation. Uh, I, I would say those elders would be advised to look hard into it, honestly, and to see if they can find anything at all that corroborates that. Obviously, they're going to drill into him a little bit. Um, but that, that, that is a difficult situation from which there is no easy exit or resolution when it, it does come down to a he said, she said. Do the, in, in your view, biblically, or is the requirement of multiple witnesses uh does that have to be like per occasion or could you say, no, this, this elder has two or three people accusing him on different occasions and that meets the more than one witness requirement? No, I, yeah, I think it would. Yeah. I think, I think, I think, so even though it wasn't the same occasion, multiple, multiple times, but you still have your multiple witnesses. No, at that point, that doesn't mean the man's indicted as such. It just means you're going to, you're going to, you're going to entertain that charge. Right? No, the first, do not right. admit a charge. Okay, so we're admitting and we are now considering this charge as as potentially valid. So I, I think kind of it moves into a new new a new zone there, a new a new lane at that point. But no, if if, right. if I've had two women making a charge against a a man, say, a man um, uh, from different things, then certainly that's going to grab my attention even more. But but I guess what I'm saying to you, Coyle, is even with one charge, I'm not just going to be like. I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to recommend responding the way we did to this particular man who accused the elder of being intemperate. Right. Uh, I, I, I honestly do think we would lean into it even more uh, and, and, and start doing some due diligence on it. I mean, we would have to. 
Well, I, I want to uh, I want to get to sort of the point of congregational deliberation over this, but um, before we get there, I also want to go back to that go between for information side of the question. Uh, often churches will have you know elders who are say responsible for running the members meeting, right? Uh, one elder who exceptionally excels at that, so they're usually the person at the front of the room. Uh, if that elder is the individual who is accused, is that going to what, what is that process going to look like? I mean, if the, the accuser presumably is going to feel kind of a even more pressure either not to say anything or to try to go outside of the church structure because the, the source of information is going to be in the minds of the congregation inherently authoritative. I don't know if I'm asking this well, right? The person who's running the meeting, I'm going to have a bond with. As a member of the meeting, I'm just going to think whatever they tell me is true because that's been the case at, you know, every members meeting I've been to. Now all of a sudden someone is saying this person is doing these terrible things. Yeah, I, does that I, does that affect our approach here? Well, I, I think no matter who's being charged, there is a sense in which, well, okay, two things. Number one, there's a sense in which the person being charged needs to, on the one hand, be willing to recuse himself. And on the other hand, give give a defense if and when called to do so. Sure. Right. So I, I remember one occasion when a a brother who uh, a senior pastor of a church who um, uh, runs those meetings, as you say, a woman came up to him in church, and she was I don't know if she was a member of the church or not. She quickly made some accusations about the way. He, he 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 had he had just walked up to him at you know everybody's kind of standing around situation walked up and said you know you've been you've been looking at me salaciously and you you're leering at me and i think you're being unfaithful to your wife and, and, and made a number of accusations like that to his face um which is he tells me were just incredible uh, charges he, he didn't even barely recognize her well he i think rightly immediately took her to a couple of other elders and said uh I don't know her name was Sue. Uh, Sue, you, you you tell them what you're charging, and and brothers, I I trust you to work through these things with her, and then if you want to have further further conversations with me, please do so. Right, and it, there was a sense in which he immediately, as it were, recused himself as a non-objective party, and asked a couple of his fellow elders to do it. Well, if, if the man leading the members meeting is the one accused, I I think there it shows integrity for him to accuse and recuse himself from the process of adjudicating those charges. You know, come... S- same thing with the pastor who does the preaching. Oh, no, same that's, thing that's exactly know. right. I, I think you just have to do that. Um, and uh, there was a second thing I was going to say there. Um, oh, the, the other thing I was going to say is, I haven't mentioned yet, you know, we're using that term sexual abuse broadly. I mean, are we talking about something criminal yes. here? Uh, I mean, obviously, if this is something that's potentially criminal, you're going to be involving immediately outside authorities, uh, civil authorities. Are we just talking about something clearly sinful but not criminal? But that, that, right. That's a different scenario. Yeah, and, and that actually leads into the sort of the next question here. Uh, in this process, uh, what role do, say, external institutions play uh, in church discipline? So what... Uh, what role does, uh, and, and this is one of the big issues with the, the report on the Southern Baptist Convention, yeah. uh, what role do other churches play? So if, if you know, I'm 
I'm a member of a church or I'm an elder at a church and the local Baptist convention comes and says, hey, this elder has been accused of X, Y, and Z things when they were back at this other church. Does that count as a witness? Does that, you know, is that meeting some of the biblical requirements or is that so far outside of what scripture seems to say about this being internal to the church? Where, where do these other institutions fit in? Well, I, th I think a charge against an elder, it doesn't matter if it's coming from a church member or not. Right? Okay. So, you know, suppose, it's, you know, it's my babysitter, right? She's not a member of the church. Right. She babysits my, my kids, and she comes forward to the elders and accuses me. The fact that she's not a member of the church is neither here nor there. She's making a pretty, you know, significant charge uh, against right. my qualifications. Uh, so if, if it's somebody from a prior, and I use that example to say, if it's somebody from a prior church, Again, that's neither here nor there. Somebody making a, a disqualifying accusation, and the elders need to be prepared to hear that, right? Okay. Uh, so, okay, let's suppose somebody comes to my church and says, hey, Pastor Joe, when he was at our church, was this way. Well, I, we need to have a talk with Joe. Now, that other church doesn't have authority over my church. That individual doesn't have authority over my church. But we, as Joe's fellow elders, want to have a conversation with Joe. Right? So, so that, that's 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 where the question of church connectionalism becomes a, an issue. Now, if I was in a Presbyterian context or an Anglican context, that would, might be a little different. Those churches, or rather a collection of churches, could exercise authority over my church. But in in the case of a congregationist like me, where we understand every church to be formally autonomous or independent. Well, well, no, no other church. No, the Southern Baptist Convention is the, is the same thing. It can't formally exercise power over any one of its member churches. Now, the Southern Baptist Convention can say, hey, we don't want you to be part of our club. We're kicking you out of our club as the authority to uh, regulate its own members of the convention. But it's not formally exercising authority over the church as such. So, just you know, in this re recent conversations about the Southern Baptist Convention, the Sexual Abuse Task Force recommendations, some people raise that question. Well, this this is a infringement on church autonomy. Uh, I I just didn't see that. It, it didn't strike me as an infringement on church autonomy at all. It's it, it was saying, hey, we're gonna we're gonna take care of uh, our club and who's a member of our club, you know. Uh, and if you want to go from one church in our club to another church in our club, we're going to we're going to put some requirements on you. But it wasn't entering into any given church and telling that church who its members could be, who its pastors could be. So it it just wasn't violating church autonomy in the way Baptists or Congregationalists, or small C, have understood that that uh, term historically. Yeah, yeah, and I, I I mean I think I'm generally in agreement with you, although. Uh, I'll, I'll point our listeners back to the episode with John Whitehead on, on for more on that. Did, you, did John disagree uh, with that? Did he think it was an infringement on autonomy? No, um, but he wanted to be careful of how, of course, now it's been a couple of months. I want to be sure I'm being fair to him. <laughs> yeah. He wanted to be careful that we were respecting due process oh, yeah. and that it was more involved than just a just a list of names following people around if that makes sense yeah i, I, I yeah um, I'm, I'm utterly sympathetic with the call for due process entirely yeah uh, and you, you mentioned a minute ago uh in in terms of you know questions of 
actual violations of the law, right? There's the, the spectrum of sexual abuse that's illegal, right, and will land you jail time, and yeah. then there's the the, spectrum, the the other side of the spectrum that's maybe not illegal, but definitely sinful and uh, raises questions of propriety and so that's on. Right. Uh, what what role, what influence should the law have in, in church discipline? I, I think the example I gave you, uh, uh, if someone's convicted of tax fraud, but the church doesn't think they're guilty, what then, right? Either, either because they think, oh, he would never do that, and the law just got it wrong, uh, or, uh, you know, all taxation is theft. It's one of those churches, and he shouldn't be guilty of this anyway, right? Is that something that should figure in, factor in, when these sorts of issues, when legal issues generally, and then maybe sexual abuse issues specifically are being considered? Well, I mean, you, now you're you're really getting to the the tough areas where there is what I would what I would call overlapping jurisdictions, right, between church and state. Right. And the church has a certain uh, jurisdictional interest by virtue of of um, what's sin and what's not sin, and the, and the state has a jurisdictional issue in terms of what's criminal and not criminal. So if the state comes, let's let's use what I would think are a couple of easy cases for Christians. Um, let's or at least I hope are. You know, let's suppose the the state comes along and, and wants to criminalize parents for denying gender transitions to their 10-year-old, right? Or, right. you know, a, a state that wants to refuse um, proselytizing your, your children. You know, I think certain European countries creeping in that direction, right? Well, I think in those situations, the church is absolutely right to disobey the state, right? Um, I think that... Um, just because the person, the member of the church is still going to go through the, the criminal process by, by virtue of, of, right. of the state's power of the sword. But but it is not just. And, and we as Christians, I don't think, need to submit to it insofar as not uh, just. Um, OK, but there's other places where the state does seem to have jurisdiction that the Christians might contest. Or let's let just. Again, let me use an easy example, what I think should be an easy example. A Christian scientist says, we're going to refuse medical care to our children. And no, I don't think Christian scientists are Christians. But it's a religious claim. Um, right. I would say, yeah, sorry, that that child is the is a citizen of the state, and the state has every right and jurisdictional um, right to, to step in and protect the life of that child over and against the parent's religious wishes, Right. Bottom line, there's going to be a number of these issues that are contested. They're going to fall into this gray area. And the only final resolution is going to come on the Day of Judgment, when the Lord says, well, no, in fact, the state was wrong and the church was right, or, or vice versa. So I, I remember a, a pastor friend of mine called me and said, uh, we have a uh, member of the church who got home late, and his uh, three-year-old girl woke up, came out 11 p.m. 12 p.m. asked for a glass of water and this father uh, uh, spanked her a hundred times because he was angry that she was out of bed how did they know this well the wife was laying in their bed just you know crying into her pillow unable to stop her husband from spanking this child a hundred times and this wife had shared it with an elder's wife who had shared it with the elders and now the elders were reporting this family to CPS. And this father was saying, how dare you? That's an infringement of family autonomy. That's a, that's a, you don't even know your role as pastors. Well, this three-year-old had been spanked a hundred times. And so I advised this pastor, you absolutely should call CPS. That's terrible. That's just, I'm sick to my stomach thinking about it. Right? Or, or institute like 
public flogging is church discipline. I mean, there's <laughs> there's other ways to do that too, I suppose. Yeah, well, with that, well, with that man, okay, <laughs> we could have that conversation, right? But that, but that, but that man was claiming family rights, church rights right. over and against the state. And I, I just fundamentally disagree. Okay, so we get into these sexual abuse things. It's just sorry to say it depends on the circumstances. I know you're trying to not let me go that direction, but it really does. It depends on the, the, the charges sure. being made, what we're talking about, whether or not this is something that belongs to the state or, or doesn't. So, so, and this is one of the issues that we do, that the report on the, the convention runs into a little bit. Uh, how obligated are elders to, to sort of know the law, right, to say no things like mandatory reporter legislation in your yeah, state? I yeah, mean, what... Yeah which you may or may not be just depending on where you're at. Right. I, I, I don't think every state has that for pastors at this point. Yeah. It, um, it, I don't know. Maybe they do. Ignorance does not exculpate you from guilt. Right. I think elders are responsible to know the laws in their state. And so back when I was a member or I was an elder at Capitol Hill Baptist, uh, and you, you might've even been there at that point. Kyle. I remember on one occasion at an elders meeting, we had a lawyer come in and brief us on the laws of DC Maryland and Virginia. Not only do we need to know our own state, we need to know the two surrounding states. And if if although DC is not a state, Jonathan, you, <laughs> nor should it be. Oh, you're right. Thank you. Sorry. But, you know, we had to figure out. Okay, something happens. You know, with a college student up at the University of Maryland, she tells us in DC, the guy lives in Virginia. Uh, you know, we, you know. So we, we had to work right. through all of that stuff as well, right? But no, I, I, I think we are being responsible elders by inviting the lawyer in to brief us on what mandatory reporting was for our various jurisdictions. And I, I think elders absolutely should be aware of such rules. Well, as uh, as, as you pointed out, uh, these these sorts of conversations, especially uh, especially sexual abuse, they, they often come down to he said, she said scenarios just because of the nature of the uh, the sin in question yeah. right uh how do we as as a member of the congregation right elders let's say they're presenting this to us uh how do we think about this in terms of you know burden of proof and presumption of innocence and uh right to confront an accuser you know do do we uh are we obligated to make the name of the victim public to the church uh, i mean where, where do we fit all of that into church discipline uh, okay, I heard two questions there. One, burden of proof. Two, there are like six questions. Yeah, there. yeah. And two, do we make the, the victim's name known? On burden of proof. Okay, let, let, let me go back to the biblical text that that uh, that reference to two or three witnesses. I guess the way I received that, and I should have said this earlier, the way I received that is is less. It actually has to be two or three witnesses, as it is. You need evidence. You, right. you need something to corroborate this charge. Right, that that makes this charge credible and believable. I I, I understand now. In, you know, in Jesus Jewish Jewish context, he would have been talking about DNA. You know, he, he was he was talking about witnesses, and and I think we can analogize from there that it just it, it, anything that would give that would substantiate a charge. Um. So, okay, again, let's suppose a woman or a man makes a charge against. Uh, member of the church or the elder, I, I, I think we need to look around. I think we need to say, okay, I'll look at anything you can bring me. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to whoever you tell me to talk to, you know, within reason. Because um, right. I, I, I do want to get to the bottom of this with you, and I, I want to um, 
assume automatically that you're not just making things up. At the same time, I can't simultaneously assume the person is guilty. So you are really in a situation of having to adjudicate that charge. Um, I, I don't think it's right, as many today would tell us to do, to immediately presume the accusation is correct. I think that is an injustice, to assume a mere accusation is correct. Biblically, I, I could point to verse after verse that talks about not favoring you know, the rich or the poor. We, we, we need to do due process. The Bible cares a ton about due process because Christianity is a religion of truth. And if we do away with truth and just submit ourselves to this or that form of partiality, whether to this group or that group, then that's not a good situation. Nonetheless, we also need to be aware of all the dynamics at play uh, with with situations of, of, of abuse. And again, as I said before, recognize how difficult it may be to come forward and, and work hard at uh, um, asking if, if, if there's anything they can do. And so the Old Testament even talks about you know, if a woman is in a city where she can be heard and she screams or doesn't scream versus in the country, she screams but can't be heard. Okay, the, the, the Old Testament isn't giving us precisely the rules that we need to follow as such, but it is showing interest in something that credibly establishes a charge. So in that situation, yeah, we, we, we should look into it and, and do all we can. But at the end of the day, you just, you just can't play partial. Right. You have to go where the evidence leads, if, if there is some. And I forget the second. Oh, uh, in terms of reporting to the congregation. Yeah, how much how much does the congregation need to know, uh, especially for those of us who are congregationalists? So we assume right. that it's an accurate charge. We we assume that the elders believe it's accurate, right? Let's or or maybe the elders don't know, but there are two witnesses, right? Uh, the the biblical criteria have been met. Uh, so out of good conscience, the elders are taking this to the congregation along with a recommendation. How, how much detail gets You're passed You're not going to like this answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not a fun topic, Jonathan. I don't like any of these answers. You know what I'm going to say, though? It just depends. Yeah. What we tell the church just depends. On the one hand, I, I don't want to tell the church if, if, if the matter is not established, if the charge isn't established, if, if, if we don't believe the accuser. No, I don't want to tell the church. Uh, uh, if it's going to harm that individual reputation, if, if the person well, you might be obligated person, to, though, right? What's that? You might be obligated still to go. I mean, if you have two witnesses and they they persist, and I mean, well, don't if, you have to go to the church? And well, if two, no, I don't think I have to at all. If, if two people come forward and say, you know, Joe has is is doing this, Joe is doing X. And we've, we've looked into it and we're convinced that Joe is not doing X. No, I'm, I'm not going to take that to the whole church. Now, those two witnesses might decide to. Insofar as I have oversight over an elder, I'm, I'm, I'm not oversight of the congregation of an elder. It doesn't mean I'm, I'm bound. I'm obligated to bring every single charge anybody might ever make to the whole church. By no means. Now, those two witnesses might say, well, we're going to bring the charge anyway. I'm like, okay, well, then you take the charge and we're going to respond to it. We're going to say we've investigated these and we, 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 we think they're, they're fraudulent claims. But no, I, I don't understand us to have, have that obligation at all. Um, okay. Yeah, so, Sorry, but you're, no, that's right. You're going to go to the church if you, you think there needs to be something. So let's suppose the person, and I have been in this scenario, where a person made a charge and proceeded to make the charge to the whole church in person or by email. And in that situation, yeah. the elders had to go to the church and say, okay, here's what we understand to have happened. You know? So the, you get that principle from Matthew 18. One, two, or three 
whole church. Well, what's the difference between that and 1 Corinthians 5? Paul immediately talks to the whole church. Well, the whole church already knew that this man was sleeping with his father's wife, that he had to address the church. Now, if it had been just been known by one or two, maybe Paul would have just addressed the one or two. We don't know. But it was known by the whole church. So if, if the charge is known, yeah, the, the elders have to address them. Um, if it's a situation where maybe it's in the courts and it's being processed, yeah, you, you might have to tell the church. That, yeah, and in fact, I think you have to. I mean, if it's showing up in the newspaper or online, I think you need to go before the congregation and shepherd them and how to respond based on what you know of the situation. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll stop there. Well, I, those those are the question that I, questions that I'd sent you in advance. Um, any uh, anything you think our listeners need to know on uh, church discipline discipline broadly uh, or church discipline and uh, sexual abuse narrowly? Yeah, a few things. Number one, this is why you want a plurality of elders in your congregation. Uh, these are terribly difficult situations. I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting at an elder table, not necessarily under charges of sexual abuse, but you know, marriage, divorce, remarriage, church discipline generally. And I just think, oh my gosh, I don't know, this is tough. I'm so glad I have, I have wives, brothers around me. So number number one, this is just one more reason for a plurality of elders. Number two, I do think it's it's reason for congregationalism. I think that the congregation, and I think elders need to be equipped with the congregation to be a final check on the elders when occasion arises and it's necessary. Um, and... Uh, uh, when elders are faced with having to present issues to the church, it forces them to be careful and to be wise in what they say. So a lot of these situations, I don't know about sexual abuse, but abuse generally, and I guess also sexual abuse, particularly, Coyle, those that have been highlighted in this SBC, um, or the Guidestone report at the SBC, and that we've been reading about the last few years, often, I'm going to get into a little, the weeds here on polity, often are coming from elder rule churches. Churches where the congregation hasn't been discipled, the congregation doesn't know they have the final authority, and it really is kind of the pastors ruling the roost. I think your independent elder ruled church is in some ways the most dangerous form of government because they're neither accountable upwards to the presbytery or the general assembly nor downward to the congregation. And your, your present pragmatic era of church structure always defaults towards elder rule i.e the pastors just decide do you do you think that's maybe a function of the size of the church though yeah, yeah, uh, it is. both, both in terms of uh you know your if your church has ten thousand people and seven campuses and 50 you know sunday meetings or whatever uh there will be more opportunities for sin yeah. uh certainly as the pastor or, or elder of that church uh, but also more opportunities for kind of the public release of that knowledge. Well, the larger a church gets, the more the demands of efficiency uh, tends to, and you're a political scientist, you know this, the larger right. any organization gets, the more power naturally concentrates at the top and kind of gets moved to fewer and fewer hands. And uh, that happens in churches, too, as you start getting into the hundreds and then especially the thousands. It, there's just kind of a natural, pragmatic concentration of power. But I, I think, to some extent, churches need to work against that. And so you look at the church in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 6, you have a division between the Greek-speaking and the Hebrew-speaking widows, food not getting distribution. Look at verse chap verses 1 and 2. The apostles pulled, pulled together the full number of disciples and said, hey, folk, we got a problem. Some of our widows are being neglected. 
They called a congregational meeting with some six, seven, ten thousand members. So I don't think size necessarily precludes congregational involvement. I understand why pragmatically it tends to, but it shouldn't. And um, this is where I do think church structure and the topic of discipline in particular becomes very relevant to this conversation that we're having. Well, I, I don't have anything else for you. Anything you want to add? Otherwise, we'll we'll wrap things up there. Well, this is something I should have said at the beginning. I, I, I don't claim to be an expert on sexual abuse. I really should have said this at the beginning. I, I, I haven't. I, I, I recognize I'm an elder in a church, and I write about church discipline. And so it seems like I should be able to talk about this topic. And what you've heard from me today, brother, is kind of the best I can do. Um, and I, I, I think if there's more to learn, uh, it's responsible, it's, it's, or rather it's, it's contingent on all of it, uh, to, to go out and, and learn more that needs to be learned on this topic about the dynamics of sexual abuse. And honestly, that's something I have been beginning to read and study lately. And uh, there's a number of books that have been helpful to me. And uh, I, I think uh, there's a lot more study to go still, though. Well, uh, when when you have studied that up a little, maybe we'll have you back on <laughs> yeah. and uh, talk a little more about the, sure. the topic. Um, thanks so much for taking time to do this. I appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy. Always good to talk to you, brother. Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting ChristianHumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show, like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash City of Man podcast, or get in touch with us at City of Man podcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. This land is your land and this land is my land from the California to the New York Island from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters this land was made for you and me as I went a-walking that ribbon of highway